Sometimes what we what we think of as optimism is is kind of that cheesy thing that I make up. I make fun of it often myself because it is cheesy, and that's kind of the. And I know some of you love. My mother loves the movie Pollyanna. Uh, I don't. <laughs> it's cheesy to me, but but. She did actually have a better form of that, but that's always the image that comes to my mind. Just this idea of, <laughs> you know, all the way through your life, regardless of what happens, and, and almost that cheesy TV preacher, plaster a grin on your face, quote a couple of verses that talk about joy, and just pretend that it's all okay. And, and we almost pressure each other as Christians sometimes to have that sort of, of optimism, that sort of hope, or that sort of joy. All three of those things get uh, misunderstood when we start to make them simply externals. It's a, a cheesy smile on your face and powering through. Powering through is okay, but but when we when we make it all just superficial, it it's it is what superficiality always is. It's shallow and it crumbles under the weight of real life, and we know that. And that's why sometimes people think Christianity crumbles under under real life, because the only kind they've known was that plastered-on, fake, uh, cheesy form of optimism or joy or hope. And so we don't want to have that. And that's not, that's not, frankly, not the habit of a loving heart, because fake stuff never is, is it? Uh, part of, of having a loving heart is being genuine and being real, and so that's, that's, that's going to be the root of the way that we look at optimism this morning. Uh, it's, it's not denial either. I think I may have shared this before, but I'll just do it again because you probably forgot it. Because most people don't have a file of Soviet jokes in their head like I do. And so there's an old Soviet joke about old Soviet uh, presidents, we'll call them, uh, riding on a train. Okay? And so they're riding along on a train through Siberia, and the train breaks down. And so first they come to Stalin. And they say, Stalin, the, the train is, is broken down, and what do you want us to do? And Stalin says, execute the engineer and send everybody else on staff of the train out to a salt mine in Siberia. And so they do. They hire new people. They fix the train and they get moving. But they didn't do that great a job. And so they they break down, you know, 60 miles later, kilometers because it's Soviet Russia. Right. But a little while later, they break down. And so then they come to to uh, Khrushchev and they ask Khrushchev, well, what do you do? And he says, uh, I want you to go back to the salt mines in Siberia and of those that are still living, I want you to bring them back and have them run the train, the ones that Stalin had exiled. And because this is kind of what they did. And so he brings the people back, gets rid of the other people and they fix the train and they get going. Well, they didn't do that great a job either. And a little while later, it breaks down again. And so they come to Brezhnev. Some of you are too young to remember Brezhnev, but those old enough remember the 70s, right? I remember the 70s. I don't remember Brezhnev. I remember reading when his uh, successor died. That was the first, like the first news article I ever really read and paid attention to for whatever reason. And uh, Brezhnev, they come to him, well, Brezhnev, what do we need to do? And they said, you know, fire them, get new people, pull down the curtains and pretend we're moving. And so that's that's the way that works. And that's 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 kind of the Russia I found when I went, you know, pull down the curtains and pretend we're moving. Sometimes that's the way optimism feels. Okay, if you're a pessimist, you think that's all it is. And I'm not going to ask if there are any pessimists here uh, this morning. But if optimists annoy you, you're probably one. Uh, But this is also not let me say this. This is also not a one personality type is better than another personality type. There are people who deal with pessimism and they struggle with it. And it should be a struggle. Because nothing is always negative. 
No life is always negative. You may say, James, you don't know my life. And I would just answer, maybe you don't know my God, because no life is always negative. It can seem that way at times, and we can honestly feel that way at times. Just like no life is always positive. Uh, we may try to put up a, a falsehood like that, but that's not true. No life is full of everything is great either. And so what we're really going to look at this morning is this idea more from a worldview than a personality, more from a, a way we look at circumstances rather than being ruled by circumstances. Because I'll tell you this, if you are always ruled by your circumstances, if the only way you know how to act is to react to what happens to you, you will become a pessimist. Okay, life will chew you up and spit you out, and that's where you'll be. But it's not where God intends you to be. Okay, so that's that's kind of a little bit of a foundation for where we're going. Uh, a guy named L.P. Jacks. I honestly don't have a clue who it is. Willard quoted him, and I like the quote, and that's as as, as much as I understand of this guy. Uh, he said, "The pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity." And I'm surprised I, I said that, and I didn't see any of this from wives to husbands. But I really expected to. Okay, uh, The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. I think that's a good quote. That, that's like print that out worthy, put that on your mirror. It's good. And it's rooted in something that I believe is deep in the Christian faith. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, too, is this idea that we can actually see difficulties as an opportunity for God to work in our life, in our circumstances, regardless of how we might naturally. We might naturally be the pessimist who only sees the difficulty. And our first instinct is to whine, complain and grumble. And yet everything in the Gospels tells us to stop that. Right. And to see it a different way, because, as we'll read later, we walk by faith, not by sight. Abraham impresses me in this way. Abraham is somebody who stepped out, and this is why we're in Hebrews 11. He steps out by faith and takes on a life that he didn't even have all the details of. That alone would drive some of us nuts. Some of us need to know exactly where we're going, when we're going to get there. You don't even just want to know, okay, tomorrow we're going to go to Utah. And for some people, that would be good enough. For some of you, you're spur-of-the-moment kind of people. You like things to be spontaneous. And so you actually could be a person that could get up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, let's go to Utah. I don't know if any of you have ever done something like that. We, we love to do stuff like that. For one thing, with our schedules, that's usually the only way it's going to happen anyway. And so you just do that. And, and I, I learned that from my grandfather. He was a preacher. My grandmother kept a, an overnight bag in the trunk at all times because she never knew when he was going to say, hey, I actually have tonight free. Let's go out of town. And he met to the cafe, but half the time they ended up not coming back till the next day. And so she just decided, I think I need to keep a bag in the car. So she did. And she always left the house with everything unplugged and a flashlight. Always a flashlight. I don't know. But she always had those things because she didn't know where my grandfather was going. Some of you were that way. Some of you are. And my grandmother was the, I'm going to get my flashlight and I'm going to have a suitcase in the trunk. You're that kind of a person. So this kind of stuff drives you nuts. Abraham, I don't even know which was his personality. I just know which was his faith. That even if he didn't have all the details... Even though God did not say to him, let's get up in the morning and go to Utah. God said to Abraham, let's get up in the morning and go. And I'll show you along the way where you're going. He got up and went. That impresses me. So by faith, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. A place. He didn't even know where. God said, I'll make you some promises. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. You're going to be the father of many nations. 
This guy who, who was old and at the time of the promise didn't even have a kid yet. This is what God says to him. Abraham, by faith, gets up and he goes. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he reasoned that God's promise was real. He reasoned that God's promise was trustworthy. And he reasoned that God's promise was so real and trustworthy that even if he didn't have the details, even if he didn't understand it, even if at times it was difficult, and if you read his life story, it was difficult sometimes. He had everything from, from worldly neighbors to threats against his life. He actually had to lead like a SEAL Team raid party to go rescue his nephew who was obnoxious at times, although he too lived by faith. He still was obnoxious, okay? But, but Abraham did all those things and trusted and clinged to it because he trusted the one who made the promise. This is where we really come to understand what a, a faithful optimism is. It's not plastering on a smile. It's not pretending that things are just going to get better. It's rooted in our faith that God really does work all things together for good. Even the things that Satan begins, God can bring about a godly end. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. That he can bring those things together for good for those who love him and are called, like Abraham, according to his promise. And like Abraham, we step out on faith and we step out believing God is real, His promises are real, He is trustworthy, and I can actually put my full weight on this even when I don't have the details and when things look really bleak. When it looks really bad, I can still trust that God is going to do this because of my faith in God. In 2 Corinthians, and we'll read this later, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes that as walking by faith, not by sight. It's a view of the world, of our circumstances, and our future that says, no matter what it looks like now, God can make it better. Not it can get better, because things don't get better on their own. God can make it better. Okay? So that's, that's where we want it to always be rooted. And Abraham is a great example of that. And Abraham wasn't perfect. That's why I like him. Abraham wasn't perfect. Sometimes he got impatient with God's plan. He and Sarah did. And so they tried in, in Genesis 15 to work it out on their own. That did not work out. Okay? That was walking by sight, not by faith. They could see you know, their own plan. They couldn't see God's. And all that did was mess them up. And we've all been there and done that, right? Every last one of us has been through that ordeal. Maybe, hopefully not the same way as Abraham and Sarah, but we've been there and done that. The war, the, the war in Germany has a lot of stories of faith that came out of it. And it's kind of interesting because you look at that and it's incredible evil that happened in World War II. It's really, for those of us that weren't around at the time, it's hard for us to comprehend to the point that some people, in, in their wrestling to comprehend how bad it really was, they try, to, they try to say, they go into a denial that it even happened because they just can't fathom that something that evil and that broad really happened. But it happened. And a lot of the survivors have stories that actually are the opposite of what you would expect for somebody that was in a concentration camp. There are stories of hope. There are stories of faith. There are even stories of finding eventually joy, which we would think would be impossible in such a place. And yet they happened. One such story is represented by this picture. 
And I'll tell you, uh, looking through some of the pictures as I was, I was looking for one to put into the slides this morning. Uh, well, this one I put in this morning because I realized that the one I had in first wasn't quite right uh, about its location. Looking at some of these pictures, just moving to me. And I, it, pictures really do uh, speak in incredible ways. Because this is a picture of American and Allied prisoners on their release as the American troops got there. But one of the stories that Willard shares in his book is before the, the rescuers got there. At one of the, the concentration camps where our prisoners were, uh, where our soldiers were being held prisoner, there were, they had the, uh, the British and Scottish and Irish troops separated from the American troops. I don't know why, but for whatever reason they did. But one of the American troops was of Scottish descent. He had made a friendship through the fence with one of the Scottish soldiers who sometimes could get information to him from outside the camp. And he would share that with this American soldier whose last name was MacDonald. And MacDonald would, uh, would try and get bits just to kind of hold on. You know, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And it had been a while since he'd gotten any good news. Until one day, he's at the fence and the Scottish guy comes up to him and all he says is, they've come, they've come, they've come. He didn't know the details of everything that meant. He didn't even need to know the details of everything that meant. What the Scottish man was talking about was the D-Day invasion. Word had gotten to them that, that the forces were finally there at Normandy. And they hadn't even gotten very far at the time that they got this little bit of news. And they were so far away when you think about it. Well, they're at the coast of France. But the news had gotten there and it's not real at the prison yet. The Nazi guards thought the soldiers were crazy as news spread through the camp. People started screaming and shouting and jumping with joy. They said some of the soldiers actually were rolling around in the dirt because they were so ecstatic and excited. They just flat couldn't, couldn't control themselves. They were, for lack of a better word, they were just giddy with the news that, that American forces and British forces were making their way toward them, even though they had so many miles to go. If they had looked around at their circumstance... They would have seen Nazi soldiers with machine guns and guard towers and barbed wire. There was nothing in their sight to give them hope. And the German soldiers thought they were nuts because the German soldiers felt quite confident that nobody was coming. And all they saw with their sight was that they were still in control and that these soldiers imprisoned were under their thumb. But the hope was contagious and it couldn't be controlled. And it was all sparked by the knowledge that the, uh, that the forces were coming. What an interesting parallel that is to the Christian life. Because we really are people who are the now but not yet. By our sight, we look at around at a world that is still as messed up as it was the day that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. We feel sometimes like it's as messed up, though I kind of wonder. Uh, yeah, I think things were worse than we think, but almost as messed up as they were the day the rain started and the ark floated. And by sight, we would find reasons to be discouraged. We might find reasons to think it's time to give up, that we've been defeated. And the world's been here and done that before. And the church of Jesus Christ has been there and done that before. And the record is that's always a wrong vision. It's been proven false every single time. That faith has won out over sight every single time. Because we had the same thing that sparked their enthusiasm. We already know Jesus is coming. We already know that He will win. 
His invasion forces, that's you, are already on the shores of Normandy and making headway, and Satan loses. And to those who are still in Hades' grasp, the news that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the forces of the kingdom of God is good, incredible news. None of this is fake. None of this is shallow. None of this is superficial optimism because it's rooted in some of the greatest, deepest truths of the Christian faith. Jesus wins. Jesus, through the cross, has won. And Jesus, through the resurrection, brings us our own victory. And that news is now spreading throughout the camp. And those who find it ought to be ecstatic because you've already won, regardless of what the guard at the gate might think he's got. There was another lady in another concentration camp who knew that too. Some of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom from The Hiding Place. Incredible story of faith and an incredible example of faith. She was in a concentration camp in Germany as well. And what happened with her was they eventually got a New Testament smuggled in to her barracks, got it past the guards, and they would read every night from this New Testament different passages. And they would have to hide it, and they would have to go through all kinds of links to be able to keep those things. Eventually, they started having a nightly Bible study in concentration camp where these things were by far illegal, right? But, but they did it. And it, it infused within her barracks an enthusiasm and a hope that was absolutely contagious within the barracks. And people who were not believers when they went into the concentration camp were Christians, our sisters in Christ, when they came out. It's incredible. And they actually they gained a, a reputation there in the concentration camp among those who did not have this hope and who did not understand why they were so enthusiastic as being crazy people because they had hope. Guys, sometimes the world looks at us and they think when we're enthusiastic and optimistic and hopeful, there are people who look at us and go, man, those people are nuts. There's no reason for them to be happy about their circumstance. There's no reason that they should still be smiling while they're going through hell. And sometimes that's, that's what happens when you know the true hope of Christ. You're able to laugh through, to smile through, to get through, to sing through things that are incredibly difficult because of this hope that you have. And it may look crazy to somebody who doesn't understand. They became known as the crazy people who had hope. And that hope got them through. Imagine if it hadn't. How many lives have been changed by her testimony of her story in that place? Those lives that wouldn't have been changed had she not held on to and spread that hope among those people. Even in the darkest places where Satan seems to have his greatest victories, and I would think that would be a concentration camp, there can be hope. They found joy. They found life. They found love because they found Jesus. How would it change your life if living in some place far more comfortable than a concentration camp, you found the same thing? How would it change your family if you spread it in the same way? What would it do to our town, to our country, if we did that? If we saw ourselves the way she saw herself there, as an ambassador for Christ who walks by faith and not by sight and who can find joy and hope in any circumstance. And it is a decision we make to trust that hope and to trust it against the things that we see, sometimes even the things that we feel. Viktor Frankl, another man who was in a German concentration camp, wrote the book, The Meaning of Life. It's small, short, and excellent. 
Excellent. When he was being tortured on a table, and I know I've shared this before with you, but it just it bears repeating. When he was on a table being tortured in a Nazi concentration camp, he said he made the most important discovery of his life. He found that there was one thing that his torturers could not take from him. He said it was the greatest of human freedoms, the freedom under any circumstance. Okay, and if he's on a torture table in a Nazi concentration camp, I think he trumps most of what we go through. So no excuses, right? No asterisks. He said he found there that no matter what they did, they could not take from him the greatest human freedom, the freedom to choose how we respond under any circumstance. He said even in the most dire situations, and he knew those situations, they were trying to break him. He found he could choose how he responded to them and that the freedom to choose was the freedom to live. The freedom to live by faith, which he did, to live by hope, which he did. And he came out and again provided a window into the human heart and the human soul and the human condition because of those difficult circumstances. It's a lot like what Peter talks about, how our faith, refined like gold by fire and circumstances, comes out more valuable and stronger. And so does our optimism and our outlook because we see through those circumstances where God really does deliver we, where He really does keep His promises. We can see where He can bring joy even to the very darkest of places. There was a... Willard shares a story about a lady named Rule Howe. And when she was a kid, their house burned down. They lived out on a farm way out of town. It was a long time ago. There, were no, there was no volunteer fire department to come out there and put the, the fire out. There were no neighbors close enough to be of any help. And so the house just burned all the way to the ground. And after it burned to the ground... They walked, because that was the only way to do it, they walked into town to try and get some help, clean up and all of that. When she and her father got back, her mother had made a picnic on a log. And she had picked some wildflowers and put them in a tin can. And she had the lunch laid out and a tin can of flowers. And this, this little girl said it stuck with her the rest of her life. That her mother had just lost Everything in terms of house, home, belongings, and all of that. Everything was gone. And yet her mother assured her, just through this simple act of the lunch and the flowers, everything's going to be all right. There is hope here. There is joy here. This is not the end of the world. And we're going to be all right. And she said that carried her through the rest of her life, knowing that no matter what happens, you can lose everything that's temporary. God has us. It's going to be okay. Israel, as a nation, had to learn that the hard way. They had been taken off into captivity because of some of their own bad decisions and their own idolatry. And so they were in captivity in Babylon. At the other end of that story, God still kept His promise that that would not be forever. That the exile would end and they would come home. Nehemiah helped lead the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And then eventually they rebuilt the temple. And in this, that story, as they, they start to recover not only the buildings and the walls and all of those things, but start to then focus on recovering their life, their daily life and their worship of God and getting things back where they belong. They read the law of Moses. So in, in Numbers 7 and 8, not Numbers, Nehemiah, hello, Nehemiah 7 and 8, they, uh, they are, are starting to get back into their, uh, their religious groove and faith-built groove, so to speak. And when they do, they are going to celebrate it. It's October, actually, if 
funny enough. It's October when they do this. So that brings the Feast of Booths. And so they're going to have the Feast of Booths. It's kind of a harvest festival among the people of God. And that, that, that celebration and festival is to show that it is God who provides and God who, who gives us everything that we need. But they've been reading the law. And they had started actually crying and moaning. I don't know if that was t- because they realized how badly Israel had really botched it. Because that, I think that's part of the picture. Some of it was tears of repentance. Some of it, I think, was tears of, wow, we still have so far to go. We're not there yet, not physically or spiritually, and how sad it is. And they kind of go into mourning over everything that's happened. And Nehemiah, the governor, gets up and he says, listen, don't, don't be mourning about this. Don't be crying about this. This is a great day. And so he writes this. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's like he, this, this festival they had is, is probably closest to something that we do at Thanksgiving. It's a time where you thank God for the harvest. You thank God for his provision. You thank God for everything that you've been given. And you celebrate it with what? Turkey and dressing? They didn't do turkey and dressing. They had brisket, right? So that's not a bad idea, is it? That's not, man, that sounds all right. Mm, we're nearly done. So they, uh, they had this festival and this meal together and they celebrate together. But there's this bolded part that I think is really cool that I think is the root of real Christian optimism. It is that we find God's joy in celebrating what He's done, what He's done in Jesus Christ for us and in our lives individually for us. And that joy is not the result of our being strong people. That's that's when we are dependent on ourselves. When we're dependent on ourselves, we're only joyful when we've accomplished something ourselves. Christian joy comes even before our own strength comes. Christian joy provides our strength. It says, even when I'm weak and hurt and broken, I can find gladness in that I know what God has done and I know what God will do and I can now look at my life through a different lens that sees it that way. And I can rejoice because I know that God answers, God leads, God provides, and things are going to get better. And it builds a strength in us and a resolve and a backbone to give us the strength to get through and to accomplish and to reach new heights in our faith and our walk with God. That's, That's a message he wanted and they needed. He wanted to get across to the people of Israel. I said that we were going to go to 2 Corinthians. Let's read this as we close this. 2 Corinthians, I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 19, no, 16. Therefore, and let me just tell you, I just hate having to cut out context here. Read 4 and 5. It goes with this so well. The whole chapters, 4 and 5, is, is Paul's take on exactly what we're talking about this morning. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. This is part of that being strengthened by joy. I can find joy that I know that God is actually accomplishing something through the difficulty. It's not for nothing. It's never for nothing. Even if Satan means it for harm, like Joseph told his brothers, God can turn it to something good and accomplish something in it. He says, all this is for your benefit 
Oh, nope, I jumped up a line. Here we go. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, built not built by human hands. Just think for a second. Is that not what the Hebrew writer said Abraham was looking for? Abraham walked by faith, not by sight. And he saw before him the very city Paul tells the Corinthians God has built for us. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him on a, due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then... We know what it is to fear the Lord and we try to persuade men. And we persuade our, our neighbors by actually living this kind of a hope and this kind of a view of our world and our circumstances. Let's pray together.